Hello and welcome to another episode of the Checkdown Charlie's Football Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric, and I am joined by my lovely co-host, Theo. What is going on today, Theo? I always start off by saying nothing much, but <laughs> I really do mean that this time. There hasn't <laughs> been much going on. You know, work, work is slow. We're in the mid part of summer mm. and there is really nothing much to do. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. I can't really say that my work is any more exciting than that, but uh, we're continuing our work. We're continuing our grind to bring you amazing NFL football history content. Isn't that right? Yeah, most definitely. One thing I did notice, though, this week was that the streets were absolutely dead. I don't know. Morning traffic is uh, has kind of ceased for the time being. I just feel like everybody's going up to like cottage or lake house and it's like that time of year and you know funny enough there is literally nothing happening in sports for the most part yeah i mean you know that nfl media is going to drum up some sort of controversy for everybody to start talking about around this time but we're in the middle of a heat wave here uh yesterday was the hottest day recorded in uk history so yeah 33 degrees in glasgow is just not right you know everybody around here it's it's tops off baby time to get that suntan going because you never know when it's going to be back the the uk dads don't need to go to ibiza anymore they could just uh, stay outside exactly that's right my tan comes from my computer screen because you know i've been working and researching all this time and part of what we've been researching is the miami dolphins We are now going to be bringing you guys the 1973 Dolphins season. So mini recap from last episode, you know, just the greatest season in NFL history. No big deal. Um, The only ever undefeated season, like pretty casual. What do you think? 72 Dolphins. Yeah, exactly. The only thing that had ever come close with the 07 Patriots and they didn't end up closing it out. And, uh, Eric is currently wearing his New York Giants Keem Knicks jersey to kindly remind us. And, you know, in turn, as a Dolphins fan, it it brings a smile to my face. Absolutely. Pats were close, but no cigar, baby. The Dolphins are still the only one. And it's coming up on 50 years, actually, that that'll be the case, which is absolutely nuts. We will continue on with 1973. Take it away, Theo. Coming off the greatest season in NFL history, the Miami Dolphins were clear favorites to repeat as champions. Not only were they the best team in the NFL, but they cemented themselves as the greatest professional sports team in Miami at the time, bringing the city its first championship. The Dolphins had come a long way from having players promote ticket sales at social events and half-full stadiums to where they were at the beginning of the 1973 season. Unlike ever before, there was mounting pressure from around the league to see how long the Dolphins could maintain their undefeated streak. To their credit, the players kept it cool when asked about it. Quote, other teams thought more about it than we did. We were still preparing game by game. This was according to Nick Buonaconti. There's no question in my mind the 73 team was better than the 72 team. End quote. Don Shula had told the team that the objective for 1973 was to do it again. At that moment, Larry Zonka chimed in and asked, well, who's going to break Bob Greasy's leg? I mean, if you want to do it again, you got to do it a second time, right? You got to break the other one. NFL players are super superstitious. And I feel like if that were to have happened again midseason, they wouldn't actually bat an eye. They would just keep on moving forward. 
Thankfully for Bob Greasy's other leg, they weren't that superstitious. Much like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers of 2020, the Dolphins were able to bring back all 22 starters from the previous year, although there were some subtle changes in role. One switch was an increase in touches for Eugene Mercury Morris, who was the running back on the team in 1971, but didn't have a touch during Super Bowl VI against the Cowboys. This would come at the expense of Jim Kick, who, as we mentioned, was part of Butch and Sundance with fellow runner Larry Zonka. In 1972, Morris would rise to prominence, rushing for 1,000 yards along with Zonka to solidify the Dolphins as a potent rushing attack. His career ascension would continue in 1973 when he led the league in yards per rush with 6.3. Morris attributed most of his success to his teammates, particularly the offensive line, also known as the Expendables. Quote, these guys provided not holes, but hallways for you to run into. Morris was known to not be afraid of confrontation and often used it to fuel his on-field performance. Dolphins leader and linebacker Nick Bonaconti used this to the team's advantage before playing the Patriots one week by saying that they had actually put a bounty out on Morris's head. In the script, I have a little note that says, hello, Saints and Greg Williams. So they've been doing this stuff for ages. It's not just the Saints that did it. Much more acceptable in 1972 than in 2010. Absolutely. So bet you're wondering what Morris's response was. Well, he said, okay, they're coming after me. Let them come. He would torch them on that day for 197 yards and three touchdowns in a Dolphins victory. Despite still being the team to beat in 1973, the Dolphins' undefeated streak came to an end on September 23rd in week two against the Raiders ending an 18-game winning streak, which is tied for the third longest streak in NFL history. For context, the 2007 New England Patriots won 18 straight before losing in the Super Bowl to the Giants, as many of our dedicated listeners would be well aware of. I hate talking about losing, as all Shula could muster to the media after the game. Like a true champion, the Dolphins would pick themselves up off the canvas and continue their winning ways, finishing the season 12-2. The no-name defense picked up where they had left off in 1972 only allowing a total of five passing touchdowns all season. Bills running back OJ Simpson became the first runner in NFL history to rush for 2,000 yards in a season. The first time he played the Dolphins, he was held to season-low 55 yards on the day. The Bills lost the game by 21 points. Despite being down by 17 in a Week 10 rematch against the Dolphins, the Bills kept defeating their star runner in the hopes that he would break the record. At the expense of the actual victory on the scoreboard, OJ would run for 120 yards, but the Bills would be blanked 17-0. The no-name defense would improve on last year's TD total, this time only allowing 15 touchdowns in 14 games. 15 touchdowns in 14 games. That's crazy. Think about that. To be fair, the like points per game was significantly lower in the 70s. Yes. But that is still ridiculous. Absolutely. Here's what OJ had to say about the Dolphins. Quote, I think what some people don't get about that team is that they were better than the team that didn't lose a game. They were more experienced. But what I saw most of all was that they were more confident. I always felt like I could score on any team. I could score any time. But the Dolphins were the one team where I sometimes had doubts. They were a frustrating defense to play. And during that season, after they went undefeated, they were even better because of that confidence. He goes on to add, the Dolphins intimidated people with their intellect and their will more than anything else. They outlasted you. They were in better condition, and they basically played almost perfect football 
and forced you to play almost perfect football. Again, it was all about their will. The Dolphins basically said, our will is stronger than yours. I feel like the loss early in the season was probably a good thing for this Dolphins team because all the pressure has been alleviated from the previous season because you ended up already going undefeated. So now you could just focus in more with less pressure and just stack wins on top of wins. You know, they never really have to think about going undefeated ever again because they had done so the year before. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Again, like we mentioned, they're playing with so much confidence in being undefeated. Even if you do lose a game and as frustrating as that is, you're right. They've already gotten to the top of the mountain. They just have to try to do it again. So it's not like they lost in the Super Bowl. They just lost in week two to admittedly a very, very talented Oakland Raiders squad. So it's not like they lost to slouches. You know, the Raiders were one of their big rivals entering the early 70s for sure. Whenever I hear people talk about this, this old Dolphins team, in particular, this OJ Simpson quote, where he says they outlasted you, they were in better condition, and they basically played almost perfect football and forced you to play almost perfect football. I think for the most part, that's the genesis between Don Shula and defensive coordinator Arnsbarger. Shula provides that like motivation, and he's always known to really, really push them and get their conditioning to a top-notch level. Whereas Arnsparger, I don't know, he was just on a different wavelength intellectually. And we'll get into this in later episodes, especially throughout the 80s. But he's sort of an innovator when it comes to defensive football and pioneers like early versions of like the zone blitz and stuff. Basically, the premise is that they want to force offenses. They don't basically cover every single yard of grass, but they force the offenses to play pristine football, you know, to execute at 100%. You know, for the most part, opposing offenses can't do that. They can't be perfect like the Dolphins. Absolutely, man. It's when you pair that innovation from Arnsparger with the discipline and structure from Shula is when you get a totally dangerous beast. And that's exactly what played out in the early 70s for the Dolphins. Bill Stanfield had five sacks in a game against the Jets in October, and along with defensive end Vernon Herter, the 53 defense led the league in sacks in 1973. Safety Dick Anderson led the league with eight interceptions. He had four interceptions on Monday Night Football against the Pittsburgh Steelers, two of which he took back for TDs. He would go on to win Defensive Player of the Year. Here are some quotes from members of the team to back up the feeling they had in 1973. Larry Little would say, I feel that the year that we went back to back in 1973, we probably had a better football team because everybody was up for us. Everybody was trying to knock us off. We had to face that challenge every week. Bob Kuchenberg would express, I have no problem with saying that the 1973 Dolphins team was the best football team that I've ever seen. Bob Hines is quoted as saying, the best part of coming back in 73 was that the 73 team was stronger in different ways. We had more power, greater bench strength. In 73, we were respected. The teams we played that year knew we were the champions, and we were very, very good. So the teams we played that year were playing at a higher caliber than they would normally play to try and knock us off. It was tougher for us to win. Reading these quotes and sort of like 
talking about them right now remind me of our previous season when we talked about the New York Giants, in particular the 07-08 team. So in 07, they were kind of the underdogs. They squeezed into the playoffs in a wildcard spot, the New York Giants did, with a 9-7 and record and ended up besting the 18-0 Patriots. But it was really that 2008 team when they came back and like they competed at a really high level. That was probably the best Giants team that I had seen in my time watching football. And it sort of brings me back to that because, you know, 72, nobody expected them to go undefeated. They just kept on winning game by game. And then at this point, everyone's bringing their best and they're still winning, much like the 2008 New York Giants. I couldn't agree more. Even back in the 70s, you could say it was a copycat league, right? So you go from being the hunters to being the hunted and everyone is out to stop you and only you because you're the best. And to be able to play at a higher level and to bring your level of play up even further is arguably even more impressive. 1972 and 1973 showcase the importance of Paul Warfield as a number one wide receiver. As we previously described, his presence immediately jolted the Dolphins offense into prominence, giving Bob Greasy a go-to option in the passing game. Whenever there was a single coverage on Warfield, he was getting the ball. He was known for his grace and speed on the field, once being compared to a gazelle by Mercury Morris. He went to Ohio State and studied anatomy and physiology so that he could learn more about body control and hone his craft. Bob Greasy and Paul Warfield continued their big play prowess in 1973, connecting on 29 passes for the year. 11 of those passes would go for touchdowns. One has to think that if he had the same number of targets as wide receivers get nowadays, he could have easily broken the 20 touchdown barrier. He had 29 catches the whole year and 11 TDs. That's like almost 50 per- like okay fine. Uh like 33% or more than 33% touchdown rate. That's absolutely insane. Even if he's being targeted in the red zone, that's still an impossible accomplishment, especially in today's game. It just goes to show the gulf in quality between defenders and Paul Warfield and how far ahead athletically he was to the rest of the competition that he could on so few targets to have that level of production is crazy well i know in particular the dolphins like jalen waddle had like over 100 catches okay fine yeah even let's say jalen waddle had 100 catches on god knows how many targets this guy had less than 30 receptions for the year like think about that that's that just baffles me for as much as warfield was known as a big play receiver, his teammates also mention his toughness as one of his greatest traits. Larry Zonka explains, quote, Warfield never bitched, not once. He blocked his ass off and made the big catch when called upon. When I ran, I like to cut outside as much as possible near Warfield because Warfield would cross my bow and smoke the middle linebacker. The Dolphins would employ crackback blocks, which would involve an offensive player cutting hard on an angle and diving at a defender's legs to get him down on the ground. These vicious blocks were known to break legs and tear ligaments, so they were emphasis for officials in 1973. One of the players who was cited as the reason for the rule change was Paul Warfield. Regardless of the method, Warfield was clearly not afraid to get his nose dirty to help his teammates. His selfless attitude is what comes through the most. Warfield did not have a 100-yard game in the season, but that didn't matter to him. Almost like a throwback version of Heinz Ward, some may say. It's the same attitude of the team comes first, right? doesn't matter 
if I have the talent to dominate the league, and if I only have 30 catches on the year, I'm still going to block my ass off, especially if you're not getting the ball. I mean, you may as well go out and friggin' block somebody's face off if you're not going to get a, you know, you're not going to get that many catches in a game, right? Yeah. And going back to that comparison to modern times with Jalen Waddle, I was just looking it up quickly. Like Jalen Waddle only had seven touchdowns. One of them was a rushing touchdown. I'd say the biggest point of emphasis is like when you have a skill position player like Jalen Waddle, offenses are going out of their way to scheme them into the picture. Whereas this felt more like organic. We're just going to throw to Paul Warfield whenever we get the opportunity. We're not necessarily Mm -hmm. going to make him the main feature in our offensive scheme. Exactly. Well, it was more dictated by what the defense was doing, right? It was single coverage. And if they dared to put single coverage onto Warfield, he was getting the ball. In 73, defense had probably learned their lesson from 72 and said, listen, we need to get somebody else over there to cover him, which then opens lanes up for other people. So Morris would echo the same sentiment about his friend and teammate. Quote, Coming to Miami after five years with an established and highly professional organization like the Cleveland Browns, Paul was a wonderful role model, not to mention a complete football player. He had the best jumping and timing ability of any receiver I've ever seen. He is remembered for his smoothest silk moves, but he was also an excellent blocker. He led by example. The Dolphins also endured their fair share of injuries throughout the 1973 campaign. Mercury Morris was told that he had a trapped nerve and was clear to play on what turned out to be a cracked vertebra in his spine. Bob Kuchenberg broke his arm in the penultimate game of the season. They hollowed out the bone marrow from his wrist to his elbow and inserted a metal rod in its stead. He missed one game and was back to play in the first round of the playoffs, helping his team dispatch the Cincinnati Bengals 34 to 16 and Mercury Morris had over 100 yards rushing in that game after cracking his vertebra. A couple of iron men. Those injuries sort of remind me of Thomas Davis and the Carolina Panthers run to the Super Bowl. I believe it was like a couple of weeks before the Super Bowl, like during the playoff run, he had broken his arm and just like played through it. Yeah. And that's just what we hear about as regular people right through the media. Imagine how many countless injuries go unspoken and how many different injuries people are playing with at any given time. Even throughout the course of this podcast, we've tried to highlight some examples of them being absolute Ironmen, like Manny Fernandez playing with broken ribs and torn cartilage in his knee and a separated shoulder and all this stuff. And like it all comes out years later. But then in the moment, some guy misses a play and you're like, hey, what the hell? And you find out later that he's got like two broken ribs and a broken arm. And you're like, damn, I shouldn't have, shouldn't have said that. Yeah, I shouldn't have been so hard on him. I know. Seriously. It was, I know so many things slip up after the fact. Like remember when Giselle Bunchen later admitted that her husband, Tom Brady, had plenty of concussions in his past. And yeah, it was like, what the hell? Like he's <laughs> he's usually never in concussion protocol or, you know, he's never on IR for that. Mm. Or not IR, but the injury list. And it sort of said like casually after the fact and like people sort of just ignore it. But it's it is true. Like we don't know the extent to most of these players injuries. Next up was a date with the Oakland Raiders, the team that had snapped their winning streak earlier in the season. The Raiders boasted the league's number one rushing defense, which turned out to be no match for the Dolphins rushing attack. They amassed a total of 292 yards on the ground. Greasy noticed on film that the Raiders neglected to cover the quarterback when they were in nickel. 
and he took full advantage. He threw only six passes on the day, but set up the game winner on a QB run on third and long as the Dolphins cruised to a 27-10 victory and another trip to the Super Bowl. I just want to highlight six passes in the game, and they scored 27 points. That isn't something outrageous at that point in time. No. Mac Jones throws three passes this regular season, and it's all anybody can talk about. And it's like, oh, we've completely ignored the quarterback position that game. Previous eras, that was totally normal. It's a throwback, man. Throwback to 50 years in the past. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it just goes to show how dominant their rushing attack could be. You switch it up with Mercury Morris, with Zonka, with Kick. You know, that's the advantage of the committee backfield, that your QB only really has to throw six passes in the entire game. This time, the Dolphins would have to face the Minnesota Vikings, whose defensive line was known as the Purple People Eaters. The squad was built in part by Joe Thomas, who made his bones with the Vikings before being hired to start the Dolphins dynasty. Before the game, there was a bet made between the Miami City Commissioner and the mayor of Minneapolis. What was at stake? A bag of oranges and all the suntan lotion you can use before March the 1st. And what did Miami ask for in return? A bag of snow, of course. Absolutely useless. And that's, (laughs) you know, it's with the foregone conclusion that they're probably just going to win anyways. So why bother? It's for the lulls, man. It's for the lulls. The media quickly picked up on the contrast between Don Shula and his Vikings counterpart, Bud Grant. Hunter S. Thompson wrote, quote, In stark contrast to Shula, Viking coach Bud Grant spent most of Super Bowl week acting like a Marine Corps drill sergeant with the terminal case of the piles. Grant's public behavior in Houston called up ominous memories of Redskin coach George Allen's frantic pregame bitching last year in Los Angeles. There were rumors circling around that defensive coordinator Bill Arnsparger would be named the next head coach of the New York Giants. Both he and Shula seemed to be aware of the speculation, but they deflected questions from the media before the big game. As he did during Super Bowl VII, Joe Robbie had offered to fly the players' wives out for the week, but didn't mention whether or not this included the significant others who were not married. Single players asked if they could have their mothers flown out instead, but Robbie declined. Somehow, the media got word of this mini-scandal, but Shula played it off like a pro. Even Don couldn't keep a straight face when a reporter asked if the married players could fly their girlfriends out too. For the third year in a row, Sports Illustrated had the Dolphins as underdogs in the big game. Manny Fernandez predicted a Dolphin victory. Joe Namath, somewhat of an expert in the guarantee department, said, if Miami scores in the opening drive, the game is over. The Purple People Eaters were led by their star Hall of Fame defensive end, Alan Page. He was a force to be reckoned with on the line and is unfairly known mostly for recovering a fumble and taking it back the wrong way. To celebrate what he thought was a TD, he threw the ball out of the back of his own end zone and scored a safety instead. As it turned out, the Vikings melted in the face of a relentless rushing attack from Miami. The Dolphins would use a similar game plan to the Cowboys two years prior, utilizing misdirection runs to neutralize the Purple People Eaters up front. The Expendables would take charge of the game in the trenches, meeting with little resistance from the vaunted defensive line. Once Bud Grant adapted to the misdirection, Greasy would change up and call for straightforward running plays, creating massive holes for the runners in the backfield. Alan Page was so frustrated at being stonewalled by Bob Kuchenberg all game that he threw a punch at the guard in front of an official and got himself ejected. Hunter S. Thompson said, quote, The Dolphins took the opening kickoff and stomped the Vikings defense like they were a gang of sick junkies. 
Larry Zonka would take home MVP honors as he ran for a Super Bowl record 145 yards and two touchdowns on 33 carries. Bob Kuchenberg and his metal arm were able to stop future Hall of Fame defensive end Alan Page and keep the Purple People Eaters at bay. Say that five times fast. Fran Tarkenton and the Vikings offense were held to just seven points and Bob Greasy only attempted seven passes in the entire game. That means in the championship game and in the Super Bowl, he attempted a grand total of 13 passes. That's crazy. Again, what the heck is this offensive efficiency from the Dolphins? The Dolphins would cruise to another victory. Many veterans were given the chance for a curtain call, allowing them to show their appreciation to the fans and vice versa. Mercury Morris would go on to describe their performance. Quote, they could not stop the machine that we brought there. Tex Mall from Sports Illustrated summed it up. Quote, Super Bowl VIII had all the excitement and suspense of a master butcher quartering a steer. With their second Super Bowl victory in three years, the Dolphins entered the upper echelon of NFL teams. Some said that they were the greatest team of all time up to that point in the history of the game. Naturally, the comparison started between Shula's Dolphins and Lombardi's Packers. Here are some quotes from the players at the time. Jim Langer. I'm tired of hearing all that crap about how Green Bay was. I wish they were still around so we could settle the issue. They seem to be the only team that ever gets lasting recognition for greatness or a dynasty or whatever. Well, I'd like to say that if this isn't a dynasty, if this isn't a great team, would someone mind telling me just what the hell it takes to be one? Mar Fleming, who played on Lombardi's Packers, said this about the Dolphins. Quote, it's the best team I've ever played with or anybody else will ever play with. Larry Zonka would say, I don't know if we're the greatest team of all time, but let's just say we're the class of the neighborhood. Larry Little would chime in. I don't want to say that we are a dynasty, but we are the best team in the history of pro football. If anyone has any doubts now, show them to me and I'll have them committed. Manny Fernandez would go on to say, and this is directly from the book, it's called, but we were 17 and 0. Quote, I think during the short time that we dominated, we dominated as well as anyone. I don't think anyone played at a higher level of football than we did. I don't think we played any better than we had to. We had a bunch of loose guys who liked to have fun at it. The more we were tested, I think the better we performed. Personally, I also think the 17-0 team wasn't as good. We continued to improve. I think we were a better football team in 73, to be perfectly honest with you. We gave up fewer points defensively. Offensively, we scored more points. We lost two ball games, but when it came time for the playoffs, we dominated the playoffs. We literally beat the hell out of Cincinnati, thoroughly beat up on Oakland, and then we went in. We could have beaten Minnesota by 50 points. We didn't throw the ball in the second half. Zero passes. We threw five passes the entire game. We were five for seven passing the first half. It was total domination. If Bob wanted to put the ball up in the air, I personally think we could have destroyed them. They had no luck. They had one drive against us that amounted to anything, and that was it. They didn't have anything other than that one touchdown drive. It was a fun game. We were only on the field for 37 defensive plays. We gave up a total of seven or eight first downs the whole game, and five of those were on the touchdown drive. It gives you an idea of how we totally dominated Minnesota in that Super Bowl. What is most impressive to me personally is the level of dominance that was exhibited by players 
who actually needed a second job. For example, Manny Fernandez was a carpenter. Larry Little was a substitute teacher. Nick Bonaconti had a law degree, worked for a law firm. Dick Anderson actually sold insurance and invested in real estate in the offseason. The story goes that he would hog the locker room payphone for doing business. And this guy, just to give you an idea of the level of how G'd up this guy was, he had a car phone in 1972. Wow. 1972 in Miami. He's not even like... It's not even the 80s, you know what I mean? I like, know. I'm, I'm picturing like top down Coke dealer in Miami in the 1980s. Those are the ones who have the car phones and he has one 10 years prior. Legend goes that Pablo Escobar actually like looked at footage of Dick Anderson and said, I want that for my life. And then that's what inspired him. Anyway, apparently he would go to make phone calls at lunch, right? So the phone setup was about three feet long and two feet wide. Then he would press a big green button and manually dial to start wheeling and dealing from his car. Dick Anderson would also actually go on to become a Florida senator after retiring in 1977. According to undefeated defensive back Curtis Johnson, who was underrated in his time with the Dolphins in the secondary, he was actually a really, really good player. He ended up working at a bank and he actually became a firefighter in the city of Toledo, Ohio after his playing days were done. This is a result of the times, you know what I mean? The NFL isn't fully established as it is nowadays, and you can't just be fully focused. You need to sort of succession plan because the likelihood of you lasting in the NFL in the first place is not very long and the salary isn't that high. Mm -mm. So when discussing the elites, like the most dominant teams, it is fair to use that as a talking point to be like, listen, if you're comparing the 90s Cowboys to the 72 Dolphins, it's not a fair comparison because in the 90s, football was fully established. You had these monster human beings who were fully focused on one sport and they were earning millions and millions of dollars, right? But if you're comparing it to their individual era, what they did was crazy compared to what was being done at that point in time. It's not fair to a certain degree because All players in the 70s were underpaid and all players had to work second jobs for the most part, unless you were a star quarterback or one of the marquee franchise players. Right, exactly. And I think the argument that it's impressive that they were able to do this while holding down second jobs, like you said, you can flip that on its head and say, well, what was their competition doing? Competition's probably working second and third jobs too. Whereas, like you said, you now have committed professionals and people who dedicate their entire lives to playing football. So the argument can certainly be made. Although what I would say is you can only play who your competition is, right? Like they went undefeated. There's no argument with that. Even based on what we've said about the 73 team, they got even better, right? So that's Mm -hmm. what impresses me the most about it. I'd like to uh, bring up this point, and I think this is one of the most important reasons why we need to do this podcast and look at things with a fine tooth comb is that ultimately the 73 team is much better, but it's not talked about at all. Because when you look at NFL history top down and you don't really examine things carefully, everyone always quotes the 72 Dolphins. And that was just the start of this really successful dominant team, whereas 73 was the genesis of all that hard work. It's funny because they might have lost one game early on in the season, and that wasn't really a reflection, but because of that tainted loss, we don't talk about them in high regards as the 72 team. Yeah, and it was also such a dominant victory in the Super Bowl as well. It's not like a 
a classic game. It was they went in there and they friggin dominated, you know, like the Fernandez quote says it all. They just went in there and handled their business. There wasn't anything particularly exciting about Zonka getting 33 carries for a buck 45, but, you know, gets the job done, right? So going back to player salaries, all of this is to say that most players in the era needed to have other options outside of football to support their families. According to Undefeated, three key players on the Dolphins were offensive linemen Jim Langer, Bob Kuchenberg, and Larry Little. Langer made 22000 Kuchenberg made 21000 and Little 30000 Dick Anderson's first salary was 15000 his second 17500 and his third 21000 Eventually, he finally reached 38000 Then Herter played for 19000 and Wayne Moore was earning 18000 Most of this is due to the legendary avarice of one Joseph Robbie, who we get into more detail in the future. A lot of it, again, is a sign of the times, too. Certainly 38000 probably would have been a very livable salary at that point in the 70s. But it just goes to show, again, the NFL was nowhere near as big as it is now. You know, mm-hmm. you, you see these figures and you're like, how? How in God's name were these people putting their minds and bodies on the line for less than $20,000 a year? It makes absolutely no sense. But then you realize it was just what you had to do and it was fun and it was a good way of making money and being a part of a team. Yeah, it was like sort of on the level, I would say, of like professional amateur wrestling in a sense. There was just way more risk than there was reward. People might question the salaries and why there's such a discrepancy between positions. There's so much risk with playing football. And all of this has to do with the fact that there is limited information and limited transparency at this point in time. Going into later episodes, we'll talk about this in much greater detail. And like the NFLPA plays a big part in trying to open the books and keep this salary information and injury information more transparent. It comes as a shock to many of us that a lot of these players take such low salaries and there's such a discrepancy in salary based on position. If you look at all these offensive linemen, Langer, Kuchenberg, and Little are all equally important, but there's a discrepancy in their pay. A large part of this is due to lack of transparency. Later on, future episodes will get into it as to how players were able to be more informed and make better decisions based on their pay and contract situation. But at this point in time in the early 70s, it was sort of slim pickings. They just took what they could have gotten at that point in time. There wasn't very much leverage. Well, it's like any emerging job market in a sense, right? Like you need to fight for your right as a worker to be able to be treated fairly because there are people going to be taking advantage of that. I'm not saying that that's what happened, but it was a necessary thing for the NFLPA to fight for player rights and transparency financially and, you know, medically speaking with injuries and so on and so forth. It goes back to what we were saying. We only hear about the injuries that make it to the injury report. If they're complaining about an injury in 1973, you know, it's 10 times worse than what they're leading on or you'd think so. Exactly. We'll definitely get into that in much more detail, especially going through the 80s, considering that there are strikes that do affect whole seasons in the NFL. Yeah, absolutely. We will. But thank you so much for rocking with us, rocking with the Checkdown Charlie's podcast. Thanks again. Follow us on social media. Tell a friend. Recommend it to everybody you know. 
And uh, we will catch you on the next one. Take it easy, everyone. Hit us up on the socials, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, MySpace. At Checkdown Charlie's, MyFace. Kazaa. Yeah, hit me on uh, what's it <laughs> on JDate, you know? <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm going to edit that out. <laughs> All right. Peace, everyone. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Checkdown Charlie's podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Don't forget to follow us at CheckDCharlie's on Twitter and at CheckDownCharlie's on Instagram. Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms. And don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.